Quadcast Nation, this episode is all about resiliency. We have Michelle Sorensen, clinical psychologist, founder of the Resiliency Clinic, stepping up and talking about what we need to do to get through tough times like this. Tough times during this pandemic when we a lot of people are struggling. You may have lost a job. You may have been t- having a tough time with mental illness, trying to find that routine. And this episode provides you with the tools to be able to get through these tough times. I, I, I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite episodes to do. Michelle almost got me in tears. She's got some skills, yo, for real. And she's one of our speakers at the Resiliency Conference we're having September 27th, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find it at solvinghealthcare.ca backslash resilience. So, guys, without further ado, let's jump on it. Michelle Sorensen. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, we have the one and only Michelle Sorensen, my former neighbor. It's bittersweet seeing you because we, you know, I I know I'm not going to be seeing as much of you now, but yeah, we were only a few blocks away back in the day. So it it is fantastic to see you, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you today? Good, good. And she has more children than I do. She's got children <laughs> all over the place. Every time you turn around, there's a child. It's fantastic. Know. But you know what? We didn't plan it that way. We thought we were going to have a third like you. And then we, then the twin gene in my family popped up. That's how we got four. So Ta-da. I had the objective. <laughs> you had, but, Can you yeah. imagine? I, I would have loved to see in hubby's face that day he found out there was twins. I'd be like, I would have just left. You know what, Quadro? Um, he was actually way more resilient than me in the beginning because for me, having had a couple of children and I kept hearing my mom who raised twins, right? I'm a twin saying, oh, imagine, Michelle, imagine I had two of you. And so like, I didn't have that fairy tale dream of what having twins would be like. I'm like, oh, this, but yeah, my <laughs> husband was the strong one in the beginning. He was like, we're going to be okay. We're going to get through. Oh, man. That's fantastic. Speaking of which, we are here today to talk about resilience because, I mean, you don't need me to tell you, like, with COVID, with kids going back to school, there's a lot of people struggling. I see it on a regular basis at work with our our colleagues, our nurses, our allied health, our docs, and I thought there's no better person to get on the show to talk about this topic. So, Maybe we could start off by defining resilience. Like, what does that mean to you? Because to be honest with you, I would have a tough time defining resilience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people do. I mean, I'd say throughout my adult life with my professional training and even some of my own experiences, it's kind of become this theme. And it's why when I started my clinic a couple of years ago, I had to get the word resilience or resiliency in there. But to me, the simplest way to think about it is it's like the strength of a rubber band, not a brick wall, right? Like 
in our, especially in North American society, there's so much like power through, you know, be strong. I mean, certainly you as a physician know in medical training, there's that model, right? Like you can do it, toughen up. And I think resilience is more about mental toughness and this idea that, you know, kind of like a tree can bend, but it doesn't break or a rubber band. Like, can we be flexible psychologically and bounce back during hard times? Yeah. Wow. And like, what a time to be able to have that within us because COVID has really pushed us, you know, and I'd even say before COVID, I I do feel like, you know, this might be not fair, but I, I just feel like culturally we've been less resilient like any we're very aversive to any form of struggle any adversity right now and i almost feel like collectively this has gotten worse and then and then you add covid into the mix so like michelle like how do you feel like what has covid done or added to this element of trying to collectively build more resilience within our society well i love what you just said about that there has been this trend in our society like there's a lot of good focus on our rights and on, you know, making society a better place. But sometimes we could balance all that good with also like what are our responsibilities? How can we all contribute? Mm-hmm. You know, I know I've heard you say, okay, we got to step up. Like we're in really hard times. Mm-hmm. And I, I worry a little bit about this. Yeah. So if we look at COVID and what is COVID like, you know, like what an unprecedented situation where, and it's like, I'm not saying we could have done it any differently, but it's just the perfect storm of factors, like to have an international crisis, like everyone's in different forms of the same boat, but everyone's dealing with COVID. And we're telling people, especially like young, vital, energetic people that the way to help is all the things that six months or prior psychologists would have said is counter to mental health like stay home don't get together with people don't take risks like when you think really society is built on people who innovate and take risks and start new businesses who go out and meet new people and make new contacts like that's how young people get their first job you know School is about connections and building community. And often as a psychologist, yes, prior to COVID, you know, I try and encourage people like, oh, we live in this North American society where we're very individualistic Mm -hmm. and often isolated. So it'd be like, oh, like, would joining a gym or a yoga studio give you some sense of community? You'd start to see familiar faces or what can you do to get to know colleagues better? And then so much of that has been shut down and taken away from people. So like there's different age groups with different problems, but it's hard for everyone. Right? Oh man. I mean, uh, we talk about this all the time. Like in the beginning of the year, if you were to say to yourself, Hey man, we're going to be locked in our houses in like winter spring for extended periods of time. And like, I still, when you look back at it, it's been like, Holy cow has a world changed. So like a very broad question, but what are kind of the, some of the principles or ideas to try and establish um, more resilience, whether that's individually, whether that's collectively, what are some of the, the principles? 
Well, I think there's a whole bunch of things that come into play, but it kind of, for everyone to look at their own situation and see what works for them or their family or their community, we kind of have to look at, you know, sort of what makes up resilience. The fact that it's it's both innate, like some people I think do have nat- natural traits or tendencies that, you know, you, you'll meet that person who came from a really hard environment where everyone else in their family developed addictions or, you know, negative coping strategies. And then that like survivor, you know, someone who just comes out of it strong. So there are some innate qualities, but so much depends on context. So I guess during COVID, what we want to look at a little bit is, you know, what are the factors within our control? So for sure, in terms of parenting, and even us as adults, like the connection we seek out with others, you know, secure bonds and attachment, that is even more important than, say, innate characteristics like intelligence, right? Or like different people have different um, kind of protective factors. But just knowing you have someone in your corner, so couples knowing they can turn towards one another, Mm -hmm. a young adult having at least a few friends they can connect with, but probably most importantly right now, like children need secure bonds. And if they see adults frightened and panicking or negative all the time, I don't say this to put pressure on people, but we have to recognize it absolutely will affect their development, right? Mm -hmm. Even in war zones, like children need to see some strength from adults, like they need comfort and reassurance. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is, like, especially with the kids, like and they model what we're feeling or how we're acting. So to giving off that impression, like we can handle this or we'll be okay, they'll, they need that security. Um, yeah. which I think in and of itself can provide a lot of strength for people knowing that I need to be strong for my kids. Well, but and I, then it gives you something to affirm, to feel proud of, right? Like, okay, I'm supporting my kids. Like, give yeah. yourself credit, feel proud of that. Yeah. But I think of a lot of people that, despite having that as a incentive, would still struggle. And maybe it's more to the point of kind of controlling what you can control, like, as you mentioned, creating those, like making sure to connect with people that you could rely on, making sure you're connected with your your spouse. Well, things like, so, okay, so, so much of the way we feel, if high anxiety, which again, come from a place of self-compassion, it's totally understandable right now. But there are, like in psychology, we're more about behavioral science, right? Like, you know, we have psychiatrists and family docs who medicate mood and who do that piece. Um, But we're all about like, what can we control with behavior to affect our environment? So if we think about how I mean, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, that's my framework. So it's always looking at within the context of our environment, our thoughts affect our moods, our moods affect our behavior that leads into different physical symptoms. And these five factors all interact all the time. So if we even balance out our thoughts, say 25% more, which could be reducing your media by 75%, you know, like only looking at the news once a day for an hour. I mean, many of us are just glued to the news and most of it is very anxiety producing and not very balanced. Depending where you seek your news, you'll get 
different types of information and it can be extremely especially for people predisposed who are already struggling with anxiety, like the desire for order and control is huge, right? So can we make behavioral choices that help us manage our thoughts, which then helps us regulate our mood? Like even if your mood is 20% better or 10% better, like every bit better is better. And then it leads into better choices with behavior. If people aren't overwhelmed with anxiety, do they more proactively seek out exercise? Are they less likely to turn to unhealthy coping, which again is totally understandable. There's no judgment here. But I mean, throughout COVID, I definitely hear lots of stories and it's again, so understandable, but people are seeking out alcohol, marijuana for comfort, they're eating for comfort. And so we have all these other public health issues which probably in the end, they feed back into negative thoughts and more negative mood, right? Like people who gain weight because they, they have emotional eating and then they're hard on themselves. Well, understandably, it's then hard to be patient when your kids are like refusing to get off Fortnite or whatever it is that's driving you crazy. Like you're going to snap, then you'll judge yourself. So we like we want to disrupt that cycle. Wow. And so like to disrupt that cycle, can you give a, like a, a conk, like a, because I'm, yeah, like I'm always like, uh, explain it to me like I'm four, like maybe with like a concrete example of, of, of a time where you are disrupting that cycle and, and you are impacting mood and it's resulting in better behavior and and so forth. Can you give a, yeah, absolutely. Like, so if, um, Well, even let's look at before COVID, you know, if someone at our time of life with young kids comes in and is like, I'm depressed, you know, I'm withdrawn. My husband or wife said I need to go to counseling because I'm not myself. And then I learn about their life and their schedule. And all they do is drive their kids around town to activities. I mean, some people at the beginning of COVID had a huge relief to get out of their crazy schedule, like life, as we know, life was not perfect before COVID either, right? So if they go to work, they come home, they drive to the hockey arena, or the dance studio, or taekwondo. And because they're on the run, they're grabbing fast food, and they never see their spouse anymore, they don't go out for date night, because there's no money left after they do all these things for the kids, we would stop and look at that cycle. And from a very like compassionate, common sense perspective, I would probably say to that person, like, you have to pay yourself back, there has to be something for you that you enjoy. Sometimes with moms, like I'll say, like, there has to be at least a half hour to an hour a day that is for something that like calms down your nervous system and decreases resentment because you're giving back to you. Like whether you have a bath or you go for a little walk or you go to a yoga class. And a lot of people will say, no, I can't. Mm-hmm. Like it's not possible. There's no time left. Right. Wow. But then if we look at COVID, we maybe had some of the opposite kinds of problems. Again, if, you know, if we look at different age groups or different people, there's different challenges. But all of a sudden, people have nothing to do and no structure. And like one of the things that so worried me in the spring and throughout the summer was how many previously, you know, pretty high functioning families, like, again, understandably, parents gave up teenagers and even younger kids up all hours of the night, 
because that's when their friends are on the line, sleeping all day. Well, no one's going to have good mental health if their sleep schedule gets disrupted like Mm -hmm. that, right? Certainly not young, growing minds. So, okay, if we stop and we say to someone like, what's one little change you can make? So say the person who's run off their feet with their kids, I don't know, they create one carpool that creates one little block of time where I don't know, on Wednesday night, they go to the gym or yoga, or they create a date night on Saturday night with their spouse, like one change can often lead to others, right? Because then you see you're rewarded, like we respond to rewards, like any animals being conditioned, you know? Wow. And I mean, I don't know why I find this a little bit emotional provoking, but the main theme I'm hearing though is like self-compassion, like to really just take time for ourselves to almost have that more of that bandwidth to deal with life in general. Cause I mean, I, I could speak to many parents that I, I could hear their voices now, as, as you said, there's not time for that. You know, there's, I'm too busy or whatever. And, you know, I'm, Personally, I'm a big believer that there's like you could always adjust. There's always room to be able to to try and fix your schedule and to make room for yourself. But but yeah, you're right. Like the self compassion is actually it is emotionally activating for a lot of people just to stop and try and apply self compassion. We're not taught that in our perfectionistic you know, high performers are the winners. I remember you hearing you do, I think it was the Ottawa Hospital Facebook Live where you talked about the messaging from your dad, like I'm not trying to put you in therapy here, Quadjo, but- Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna- <laughs> You know, where you said the message was like, you can't be average. And that comes from a place of love, right? Like parents, yeah. so I've heard both young people and parents debrief like eruptions in their house or actually worse as the kid- swallowing it and not saying anything when they come home with the great report card and like the dad who says well what happened here and the kids like look all my other marks are great and you know like often parents will be like you're not going to get a job if you don't do well in school you're so this circles back to this need for attachment before anything else like mm-hmm. if kids kids will so internalize these anxiety producing messages But teaching them compassion, like, buddy, you did your best. You can't always, like, I'm always going to encourage you to try your best. But, like, we all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. That kid will self-regulate and get back to studying and managing their stress going into exams and probably perform better. It's Mm -hmm. highly unlikely to take away from performance. And depending on the type of kid or adult you have, you kind of have to fine-tune your approach, right? Like, Kids who are overly perfectionistic, they actually really need to get the message to take the pressure off themselves Mm. because it's not, they're not going to stop studying. They're not going to like, they're just going to try, hopefully their brain will get out of that default mode that we have. It's like a a survival tool to always be stressed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, maybe it's my palliative care in me too, but just knowing that a lot of this stems from just being compassionate. And I think, honestly, when we look at this journey throughout the pandemic, I feel like that's what's kind of helped is like we're being more available for our fellow man, woman, where I know in our house, like when we we stopped 
trying to homeschool around June and yeah. being realizing like, you know what, this is not working. You know, we're just going to let go of the perfection. The kids are going to be okay being a month off of senior kindergarten and grade two or whatever. Like it was just such a, like a collective exhale. And, and yeah. at least in our house, like you could feel like we were just more in sync. We were just a lot more. I'm trying to do the impossible, right? Yeah. You're trying to do the impossible. And then when you, so that's actually something I've said, you know, probably hundreds of times to people. Yeah. I'd say this definitely comes up a lot with moms, but it's true for everyone. Like when it feels like too much, can you get away from the question? How do I push through? How do I do more? And instead say, okay, what do I need to let go of? Mm. Right? Like what can I let go of to make this feel more manageable? And yeah, that's like a different message than we often have in our society, but it doesn't mean that we don't take responsibility for what's important. It hopefully Mm -hmm. means we let go of like the noise, the extra stuff, right? Prioritize, like just like prioritize, like it's, it's okay to take a step back. It's okay not to not always be hustling. It's okay to, to connect. And like, just hearing it too, like from a, an expert in the field, it's just like, you know, to our listeners, like this is your permission to, Right. To, to be like uh, to take that time and, and produce that compassion for yourself. Yeah, that it's okay to kind of pause, take something off your plate. But I was thinking as you were describing that and saying that it kind of like brings up this emotion. So one of the founders of mindfulness self compassion, which is like a very popular approach to mindfulness, um, Christopher Germer and Kristen Neff are two American psychologists that developed it. Actually, I really like how Kristen Neff will talk about her own experience as a parent. She already already was immersed in the research in that area, but she had a son who was on the spectrum. And so she described parenting him and how she would get all judgy with herself and then it would affect her parenting. Like if she's in a playground and she's like, what's wrong with me? Why is my son the one misbehaving? And then she'd find herself short-tempered or and she realized like, oh, I'm not practicing what I preach. I'm not being kind to myself. You know, like Mm. every parent feels like this sometimes. And yes, my son has special needs. So one of her exercises that I like, if I can plug it, I recommend it. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is what you're going to love. Yeah, her website has all these free resources that anyone can check out. And actually there's different places and different psychologists who teach her course I'm just finishing my last few weeks of like a 10 week journey, two afternoons a week of doing the teacher training. So I'm going to be offering it hopefully at my clinic this winter. But one of the exercises on her website, which is selfcompassion.org. So it's self-compassion.org. She talks about the self-compassion break. So it's like when a negative emotion comes up and I mean, look at COVID, like again, so much unhealthy very understandable coping where people try and make the anxiety go away. They like blast out their feelings on social media or they drink. But instead what she says is it's like a three-step process. First of all, you just stop. And the mindfulness is, I'm suffering. So maybe it's like, I'm anxious. Maybe I'm angry, but just noting it. And there's kind of like this background mindfulness, Buddhist influence, like the Buddhists have always known. We all suffer. You know, this idea that we can get through life without suffering, 
we're kind of setting people up to be disappointed, right? So it's like, okay, this is suffering. This feels hard. Breathe in, breathe out, try and like, like literally put your hand on your heart or on your stomach, settle your nervous system. And then you kind of note to yourself, okay, suffering is human. This just makes me a normal human being. So the common humanity is huge to mindful self-compassion. It's like we all suffer. Everyone has struggled sometimes. And then the third part is what do I need right now? What can I give myself or what can I ask for from others to feel better, right? And so it's just this little practice that you incorporate as much as you want in your life. And I think it's really transformative for a lot of people. Wow. I mean, I, I get a little bit of chills hearing that, like slowing down, acknowledging the emotion and the feeling and saying, practicing that self-compassion, saying like, this is what it's about being human. And yeah. and then t- taking the time to figure out what do, what do I need? What do, what do we need? Because I, I could tell you, I'm just thinking of all my nurse docs, allied health in the height of the pandemic and the months to come about being able to manage with such in such yeah. trying times and such mm-hmm. like I you know I at the beginning of the pandemic you could feel the tension the second you walk in the hospital doors like and you know it's too bad Michelle too that we we don't promote some of this stuff early like we're a very reactive culture or reactive in medicine in general but you know I, I can honestly think of a handful of people off the top of my head that you know they heard this this could be such a huge impact in their life that you know to be able to have those tools to manage the stress manage the anxiety um, well like look at this unhealthy expectation put on healthcare that really we needed like disaster planners and emergency management people and you guys had this incredible, I know I shared that article, I think, with you on the weekend that I thought was super interesting by a physician in the U.S. saying, looking back, like, we were expected to have all the answers and we didn't, you know. And actually, that's very Buddhist, too, having a beginner's mind, like, coming back to what you don't know, it's okay to not know. And, yeah, those unhealthy expectations, of course, lead to negative emotion. And I agree with you. Like if every hospital, every school, actually more and more in the schools we are seeing. Yeah. The, my, yeah my kids were doing that actually. Yeah. yeah. It's really great. It's so nice to see, but the hospitals could benefit. I used to do a lot of speaking and I'd travel around and especially within the diabetes community, I do a lot of work with allied health. Mm-hmm. And I think I was in Hamilton or something once, and it was really neat. I was doing a lunch and learn with a group of like a group of different health professionals And one of the nurses said, oh, we got offered free, like a free mindfulness course here at the hospital for staff. So she was the only one from her team that went and took it. And she said, oh, I learned all these great techniques. And one of my favorites is like when your thoughts start, like I often think of it like a twister. They're like going up, like it's getting out of control. She said that you just come up with a visualization that works for you. So, Hmm. you know, for her, what worked was okay, the train is pulling in the station, I'm putting my thoughts on the train, and there it goes, it's taking all those thoughts away. Other people may picture clouds floating through a sky, like, but that worked for her. So she shared it with her colleagues. And she said it became a really good source of lightness, because when people started complaining, all the politics, complaining about management, I don't know, maybe complaining about the physicians. (laughs) Trying to complain about them docs. 
about Yale? No, just joking. <laughs> she said that she would say to her team, so she didn't criticize them. You know, criticism is always our shield against our own vulnerability when we're like activated, right? So she wouldn't criticize. She would turn towards them with compassion. I mean, she didn't describe it this way, but I could see it. And she'd say, guys, the train's pulling out of the station. And she said they would all start laughing. But it was a moment of mindfulness. It's like, oh, look at us. And I've heard teachers talk about how they go through phases where they're like, I got to stay away from the staff room. I can love and appreciate my colleagues. But can I make the behavioral choice to like find someone to go for a walk with, like surround myself with positive thoughts? But yeah, if you had groups of colleagues go through mindfulness training together, then they could all cue each other without (laughs) sounding like, without sounding judgy or like sanctimonious higher, you know, like they think they're better, but just be like, oh guys, we're doing it again. We're human, but let's, let's change the dialogue here. You know? Yeah, no, I I like that a lot. And, And it's also any, anything you're doing together, you build your team building, you're connecting with your colleague. Cause I mean, I think kind of like we alluded to before having that connection, having that camaraderie is a big, in my opinion, a big component to be able to establish some resilience. Like, yeah, maybe you've heard me say in the beginning of the pandemic, in some ways, because we had that united front, we were that team. You, you could lean on each other. We had yeah. that same goal in front of us. You know, it, it really significantly decreased the anxiety, gave us that feeling that we're in it together and that we could handle a lot more than we think. So that does make a lot of sense in so many ways. One thing I should say, and maybe it's too obvious or what have you, but should we define like mindfulness? Do, they, do we need a definition of mindfulness or is this uh, is it uh, implicit? No, you're right. Not everyone knows how to describe that. So yeah, mindfulness is kind of something you have to learn about experientially from practicing it. As a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy practitioner, like I've been immersed in that for 20 years since I came out of school. Actually, yeah, exactly 20 years. I graduated in 2000 from my master's. But mindfulness is like a journey for me the last five years. I started with like a two-day conference. Then I did an eight-week course with the person I consider my main teacher. He uh, lives in Australia, a French uh, psychologist. And then I did training here in Ottawa and it's like grown. And actually in November, I did a five-day silent retreat, mindfulness retreat, which was like life-changing and great preparation for COVID. Like it was so much more than I expected it to be. But mindfulness is really like paying attention to what's in the present moment. And so people think of meditation and that's definitely a wonderful way to practice mindfulness. Even if you start with like two minutes a day, using an app, there's some really popular apps um, like Calm and Budify. I'm a big fan of Budify because you buy it once for like five or six bucks and then you own it. And it's great. It's got like a wonderful assortment of uh, meditations. But yeah, you start small. My meditation is one way you can practice, but really you can have mindful habits too, right? You could make your morning coffee I don't know, especially for parents this week, like if their kids are in school and for the first time they have some quiet, like sit and have your coffee mindfully, even if it's for two minutes without looking at your phone or getting busy with work, just like being in the moment. Or some people, every time they get to a red light, they might be like, okay, breathe in for four seconds, breathe out, like just come back to the moment. 
because we're so often just running on adrenaline. Yeah, I, I personally have introduced mindfulness habits in the last few years. And to me, it's a game changer. Like, That's I feel great. like, you know, your whole adult life, especially in what doing what we do is all about hustling and running. And, you know, taking that second to decompress and to just, you know, be in the moment is, I feel like so therapeutic. And just to be clear to others, like you mentioned coffee, for me, it's like something as simple as I'll do even walking meditation where you just feel every step you're taking and you do it gradually. Like I'll do it in the office, uh, whether it's, you know, really being cognizant of your breath and doing more abdominal breathing to uh, simulate the sympathetic nervous system, whether it's listening to a track that you really enjoy and just fully immerse in that track. You know what I'm saying? Like lie down on your couch and just listen to music. Don't multitask, right? Yeah. And it's honestly, it's hard sometimes because I'm the king of multitasking. Like I call it stacking, actually, where you just, you know, podcast while you're at the gym or, you know, meeting while you're going for a walk or what have you. But yeah, it's there is a lot of value of just slowing down, uh, being in the moment. And I think, as you said, like this does build resilience, like. So yeah, it's so important yeah, in a time now. Psychologically stronger, right? And so something people struggle with a lot with the concept of meditation is they'll say, but I'm agitated or I'm fidgety or my mind wanders. And something I learned through my own practice, but also learning from teachers is like, oh, actually, that just makes you normal. This kind of drunk monkey brain, like, you know, there's this monkey in your head jumping around. And naturally, we have a new thought every two to three seconds. And actually, a lot of them are negative. Like, we're like Velcro for negative thoughts and Teflon for positive thoughts. I've heard that said. Like, they just bounce off of us. So training yourself to just keep coming back to your breath. I think if people think about, like, you go to the gym or you go for a run, and that's like exercise for your muscles. But some days it feels amazing in the moment, and some days it feels hard but you're still building strength so that later on when you have to pick up your kid or move furniture, you have that strength, right? And meditation is like that. If it feels blissful and Zen, awesome. Don't get too attached. Tomorrow you could be back to the agitation, but if you practice it, it's helping your brain. It's giving you like this neuroplasticity that means when you come up against a tough situation, you'll be able to handle it better. Mm-hmm. And not only in general life too, like I, I'm hearing this and I, I think about how often like people in our line of work, uh, like whether it's ICU, any acute care medicine, how often just being able to slow down and allow yourself that ability to think clearer. Like mm-hmm. I also find like having that kind of ability to slow down the monkey brain and Especially like, like I've been in spots where someone's life is on the line, they're crashing or whatever, and you've thought of everything and there's a lot of panic in the room. And I can think about two or three times where I just like, okay, take a breath, think through this a second. And within seconds, oh yeah, we could try this. Yeah, we could try B. And if you were in that kind of sympathetic tone, that monkey brain where a bunch of things are jumping around, that might not have occurred to you. So like, I guess what what I'm trying to say is it applies to so much 
in life. Not only that there's an acute stressor in your life, but if you need to enhance your performance and as a clinician, as an athlete, what have you, like it's totally. just so important to be able to have that resilience that um yeah it's like the mindful leader actually kind of philosophy is that that will give you good leadership and mm -hmm. and again like rest is productive so for you to have that like second to pause helped you in an emergency but if we think on a weekly basis like i know for me when i started the clinic two years ago like every weekend i'd be here assembling furniture hustling there's always like hustle it was a really really big job but it kind of became counterproductive because you need to rest. So like now I'm much better. I mean, yeah, I might have one or two little emails to answer on a Saturday, but generally I try and really unplug and like rest or at least do other things so that then you come back to your work refreshed. Right. And I think parenting marriage, like many things are like that. If you step away, then you can come back with a clear mind problem solve better right mm -hmm. absolutely everything gets better when you when you take that that second for yourself and and what have you and i guess it's about you know when we were talking before about covid like you do this as much as you can throughout your life so that when you come up against big adversity like for you when covid was coming and you and all your colleagues were trying to figure out how to handle it or even me and my colleagues like we're self employed right there's to pivot and like I've never cared for or participated in virtual therapy before this. And within a week, like the adrenaline it took for us to get set up in home offices and keep our practices going. I mean, it's not the same as being in an emergency room, but it was still pretty busy. So we can't just expect ourselves to find resiliency in the moment. Like it's a lifelong practice. Right. And then again, we kind of see that when you, put people like research has shown that when people come up against, you know, trauma, real adversity, it's kind of like a bell curve. We have a group that will succumb to depression, anxiety, PTSD, even suicide, and they don't recover and they don't, that's a small, luckily, you know, percentage. The largest group, again, in that bell curve They'll naturally, within a month or so, when the trauma is over, they'll adapt, they'll bounce back to where they were. Like, I believe if all this COVID stuff, you know, went away, whether, I don't know when that's going to be, that most people would, they would bounce back. They would remember what old life, like, even though right now they probably can't picture ever going anywhere without a mask or feeling anxious, a lot of them, like, things would settle down. And then there's this percentage of people that actually grow from trauma and they like, they bounce forward. They become bigger, better versions of who they were. So I think the more we teach resilience, self-compassion, mindfulness skills, you know, can we put our society in a place where more are in that middle section or even the growing, you know, discovering what really matters to them, uh, getting involved in community work, charity work, parenting their kids differently, making the most of family time? Like, are there ways we can teach these skills so that people are better equipped? Yeah, I, I, got, to, I got chills here on this because, like, number one, you know, the value of having that resilience, like, th during the pandemic, the, the people, as you mentioned, that pivot, they're like, hey, man, this is the adversity right now. 
we can't just sit by the wayside and just do nothing. We got to think about how we can grow, how we can adjust. Otherwise, we're going to drown. You yeah. know, and like we need so many sectors, so many like as an economy that's going to be dying, we need this in our lives right now. And this is why it's so important. And then th- that end of that bell curve too about hearing about the people that would in fact be stronger at the end of this. Like I get chills thinking about just because of, you know, there's a lot of Black Lives Matter issues now. And, mm-hmm. and and I think a lot of kids out there hearing that, you know, I just, I think it's an important message. Like there's a lot yes. of adversity in front of you now, but I keep telling young upstarts that want to, you know, become something big, you get through it. You have the right mindset. You're going to be legend. You will be strong. You will be able to be a leader in your community. You'll be able to create opportunities for youth. So all this stems from being strong within, which comes from that element of resilience, whether, and like I said, this is something we can create. It doesn't, it's not necessarily like, as you said, Michelle, some of us are born with more of it than others, but this is something we could build like a muscle, like, and, and why not collectively do these things? Cause what you're saying, all these steps you're, you're talking about is not, you know, it's not, uh, you don't need years of therapy. You don't, it's just taking a little bit more time and being compassionate. You know what I mean? It's a strength-based approach and it's about looking for meaning, right? Like, I don't know if you ever read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. A number of people know it, but like amazing story of resilience. He's describing how he survived concentration camps. He was a Jew in the Second World War dreaming of as a young psychiatrist teaching people about resilience, right? So he has that quote I love. I've used it many times in presentations. When you can't go something like, um, yeah, like when you can't change your environment, we have to change ourselves, right? Like we have to adapt. So I think if he could do that. And so, yes, you're right. Like to right now teach young people that, okay, there's like some negative stuff going on in the world, but everything's always falling apart and coming back together, you know, Mm -hmm. like looking ahead, you will have opportunities to contribute. You can help make, again, that man's search for meaning. You can look for meaning and make meaning out of this being this generation that missed school and had COVID, you know, Wow. they didn't have COVID, but you know what I mean? Had COVID in your life. Experienced the societal COVID. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, Michelle, I you got me thinking of a, a lot of things and excited about a lot of things because you and I, amongst others, are, are going to be doing a summit on September 27th, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yeah, um, it's the evening, right? Yeah. But yeah, it's an exciting time because we'll, we're going to talk about how we can collectively amongst, you know, child psychologists, couple therapists and yourself how we can create more resilience within our society. So I'm really excited to be, be it's going to be so much fun. By the way, that's at solving healthcare backslash resilience. But Michelle, before taking off, maybe tell us a little bit about your clinic and how people could connect with you there. Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah. So I founded Ottawa South Resiliency Clinic two years ago. Our website is ottawasouthresiliencyclinic.com. Although we're, 
building a new website and soon we're just going to be resiliencyclinic.com. But yeah, I have a lovely team of colleagues here, um, a big group of psychotherapists, most of whom are still taking new referrals. And we have team profiles up and everyone here kind of, you know, uses a blend of CBT. A lot of people here have mindfulness training. We have a, a trained mindfulness teacher, Tasia Bryski, who's done uh, a number of eight-week courses here. And actually, I'm about to do a CBT resiliency bootcamp course online. We did it in person at the clinic. It was very good timing, January to March, right before COVID. We were teaching resiliency uh, to a pretty good group of like a, about 12 people. Uh, so yeah, we try and be as innovative as we can and just try and like contribute to the community and put some, some good energy out there and help as many clients as we can. That's exactly what you're doing, Michelle, putting that good energy out there. We need more of you out there. And I really appreciate the stuff you're doing. And I, I can promise you, you are going to be striking a chord with somebody out there listening right now because you struck a chord with me. And this is just, you know, I, leaving this conversation saying like, this needs to be emphasized. This needs to be put out there. It's, it's just too important. Can I leave with one thought then just to yes. give people, if people are thinking, okay, how do I start working on this? Something from the resiliency bootcamp that we worked on, that's kind of like a little exercise takes a minute or two a day, but it kind of combines mindfulness, stopping and paying attention with CBT, balancing your thoughts, is to keep a little gratitude and affirmation journal. Mm -hmm. So research shows that when we practice gratitude, like when you and I are thinking, okay, we're lucky, our families are safe, we live in nice homes during lockdown, things like that. Like gratitudes are great because they make you feel better. But affirmations are kind of going a step further. It's this giving ourselves credit. It's not being conceited. It's not being, you know, too prideful. It's just giving yourself credit for the hard work you're doing. So if you were to think, okay, my kids have a secure home, because I've worked hard to provide that. Kathy and I have worked hard to provide that. That's an affirmation. So someone writing in their journal, okay, I'm grateful the sun was out today. And, you know, an affirmation would be, and I'm going to give myself credit that I took 20 minutes to get outside on my own or with the kids. So, you know, it's that idea of just like point form, trying, like trying to put pen to paper. And again, you're retraining your brain. You're getting out of that default mode of like, oh my God, the world is falling apart and getting back to what you can control. Wow. I got to tell you too, these tips have been killer. They've been <laughs> like, there's a, there's some gold in there. Any other tips that come to mind in terms of just, yeah, just off the top yeah, of my mind? Well, I guess, like for me, the kind of building blocks are self-compassion, practicing kindness towards yourself, remembering that that's the starting point, balancing out our thoughts. So there's so much we could go into there, but it's saying to yourself, if you have a negative thought, like, oh, my friend canceled plan, she doesn't like me. Okay, what are some alternative thoughts? Maybe she's busy, maybe she's struggling, you know, just trying to balance out our thoughts. So that kind of combination of CBT and self-compassion, to me, those are really the building blocks for resiliency. Perfect. And looking Perfect. for meaning, like, again, like looking to have a purposeful life where you take responsibility for what you can change. And then you keep giving yourself credit, even if it's just surviving the day, like when mm -hmm. you and I were chatting about having young kids, like when we had 
two twins, twin babies, and a two-year-old and a four-year-old, like at the end of the day, my husband and I would look at each other and we'd just do an affirmation. We'd be like, okay, we got through this day. Look how much we did today just to survive, right? And then it's like still a hard day, but you feel better because you're giving yourself credit. Mm -hmm. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. So I got to say, I mean, it's worth asking, like you're a mother of four, you got a new clinic, you got a relatively new clinic, you're hustling, new courses, all these things. You had COVID. What are you doing? What are you doing that's that's working for you and keeping you above water? Well, I mean, like everyone, I definitely have my moments. I, I did not have a good sleep last night. <laughs> I was probably looking at too much news yesterday or, you know, I watched a not relaxing show before bedtime. I should have chosen something more relaxing to do. And I was kind of restless. So it's an ongoing practice, right? We're actually expanding the clinic. We got a second location within this team development. So there is a lot going on for me that gives me purpose. But as you kind of alluded to for yourself about the multitasking, like busy is my drug. And so I have to be self-aware that, the thing and my husband is a great checkpoint because he's very good at like stopping and opening a book or he's hard hard working but he's really mindful that way so no i have to be mindful too and when things aren't so balanced i have to you know just change start by changing one thing mm-hmm. but i am a big believer in just overall health habits to help with the psychological state. Like I try and eat well, you know, manage my health, keep active. And again, just self-compassion, recognizing that you can't hit it out of the park every week in every area of your life, right? You just keep coming back to balancing it out the best you can. I love it. I love it. I just, I thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, just I you know, we, uh, you know, it's uh, great to hear some of how you approach it. None of us are yeah. perfect, right? Hundred percent. Yeah. So, Michelle, thanks again for doing this. I look forward to us connecting on the twenty seventh. This uh, is going to be fun. It's yeah. going to be a lot of fun. Kathy's looking forward to it too. And um, awesome. thanks again. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Quadcast Nation, tell me that wasn't excellent. There's lessons in there that I think we could all use to be able to become more resilient, manage our stress better. And Michelle knocked it out of the park. And so if you guys loved what you hear, leave comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook at Quadcast. Leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And guys, you heard it. September 27th, solvinghealthcare.ca backslash resilience. It's going to be an excellent virtual summit, and we're going to give you the tools to help us all get through this. So make sure to connect. Donations, by the way, 20% of the proceeds are going to our, our charity, Bridges Over Barriers, so jump on that train. So guys, thanks again, and we'll connect again real soon.